It's something for nothing, the Rush Fan Cast. Stephen Jerry with you as always. Jerry, happy October to you. Happy October to you. Is that a thing, Steve, that people say happy October? <laughs> well, why not? It's October. Why not be happy in October? Sure. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are the Rushcast. Email Jerry the Rushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro, as always, done by our good pal Lex. And today, Jer, I've got a Twitter poll for you. Okay. Are you excited? Yes, can't you tell? <laughs> I'm trying to get you excited, Jerry. I'm very excited, Steve. <laughs> we talked about signals not too long ago. Side two of signals. I asked the Twitterverse mm-hmm. what their favorite song on side two is. Yep. The Weapon, New World Man, Losing It, or Your Favorite and Mine, Countdown. Well, I'm going to go with my favorite, New World Man. You are correct. Wow. And you are barely correct. It was really <laughs> close. That's always true, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it was really close. New World Man, 29%. Listen to this. Losing it, 28%. The weapon, 26%. Wow. This is 957 votes, so pretty close. Yeah. Countdown brought up the rear, only 17%. Oh, still respectable. Still very respectable. People do like Countdown more than you, but they do like it. That's true. But we talked about how I kind of came around to it after hearing that live, uh, the version without the, the NASA voiceover. Yeah. Right. So, so you're on the countdown fan list now. Yeah. I'm coming around to it. All right. You got an email for us, sir. I do. Uh, this email is from Steven and he's talking about the analog kid and the digital man. Oh, okay. He says, uh, hello, gentlemen. In my opinion, the Analog Kid and Digital Man are definitely about Neil. Though much more complex, the Analog and Digital simply refer to younger and older. And the songs contrast themselves in the innocence of a dreamy kid called by life and the world and the jaded nature of an adult. In this case, it was not just any adult, but rather a musician whose world is under observation. If you consider the time frame and his career's context, these lyrics paint a picture of a person under pressure of stardom, all the while remaining observationally picking up scraps of conversation. He still resolves the dreamy idealist through looking for Zion, the ideal, while spending his time in Babylon. The chorus reflects on the promise of mortality, which has always seemed the impetus for Neil to get out and play fast forward to get the most from life. Ironically, Neil writes from the third person in Analog Kid and Digital Man, Though he betrays the song is about him when he states, you move me, you move me. Interestingly, Neil touches on the themes of Analog Kid later on Clockwork Angels with the main character who can't stop thinking big in Caravan. Instead of too many hands on my time, the boy is going where I want instead of where I should. He too is being called by the world, but jumped on the caravan to find it. Even Middletown Dreams touches on the same theme with the boy who walks with his best friend. Wow. That's great. That's a good, good analysis. If you ask me. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Much smarter than us. That's for sure. That is true. Most people are. (laughs) And speaking of people who are much smarter than us, we've got another great guest today on the rush fan cast that we do publisher of the first ever rush fanzine rushology back in 1986, Derek Bacharach. Welcome to the rush fan cast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. We'd like to start out like we start out with all our guests. What's your Rush origin story, Derek? How'd you get into Rush? 
when Signals came out, I was I, I had a a policy in terms of collecting albums because you know records cost somewhat money, so much money, and so if I heard three songs on the radio on an album and I liked them, I would buy the album. And the local radio station where I came from in Long Island, WBAB 102.3, they had a show called The Sampler. It was on Sunday nights. And in the summer of 1982, I was listening to it and they said, we got some songs from the new Rush album. And they played, I remember one of the three songs they played was Chemistry. And I heard, I think, maybe Digital Man. I forget which the third one was because it's been so long ago. And I was like, okay, this is pretty good. And a friend of mine in my neighborhood, he was getting into Rush. And we opted to, hey, let's, let's go get the album. Because we heard it was coming out in August. So we got the album. And at the time, I stopped collecting records. I started collecting cassettes. So I missed the whole lyrics. And it just became another album of my collection. Now, fast forward to December of 1982. I'm in school and someone I know in my classes is going to the Rush concert. And he asked me if I want to get a concert shirt because as you probably know, most people when they, in the 80s at least, after going to a show, they like to wear the t-shirt after or the next day mm-hmm. just to both sort of imply that they went to the show. So right. I did that anyway. I, got, I, I gave him my money. I think it was, I gave like 20 bucks and he got me a, a shirt outside the show. And he had some extra money left over. So the next day when he gave me the shirt, he also gave me the tour book. And I was like, tour book? What is this thing? So this big book, um, the, album, the, cover, the cover of Signals is on it. And I take it home with me. And there's essays in it. And I was like, what is this? And so I was reading, I was reading Neil's writing. And it really opened my eyes. These guys are cool. These guys are relatable. I mean, the first song that, was in this tour book about subdivisions. It talks about Neil polishing his car. He's the greatest drummer in the world and he's polishing his car. This is so cool to read. So this really pulled me in to to get an idea of what they were like. I mean, even when you look at their descriptions about what they're playing in the, you know, the, the page that gives the credits, what they, what their, what their instruments are and the names of them, just Alex's sense of humor just oozes out of that. And it's so funny. And uh, there was a crosser puzzle in it, and it so really opened my eyes. And at the same time that Rush was, what came, was in my town in, um, in Long Island, I should say, they, saw my, they were at the Nassau Coliseum, WBAB played 102 minutes of Rush, and I got a taste of that. And I realized I really like this band a lot more than just saying, okay, I got those three, I like those three songs from the album. And eventually it was like, as some people experience, it's just like a head to toe feeling saying, wow, this is amazing. I really, really like this band. It was like a wake up call for me somehow. So that's how I got into it. So your fanzine started obviously before the internet. Yeah. So, and before you started the fanzine, you were in touch with other Rush fans from around the world. Yes. How, like, what was, what was the, uh, you know, what was the, the railroad for getting messages across to people, just putting an ad somewhere? Good question. It was, it really had to do with the Rush Backstage Club. That was the bridge. That was the railroad, wherever, when, when you, the way you say it. And in order to do that, the only way I knew about this Backstage Club because of pre-internet days was a poster from a, sort of an exit stage left poster. The classic poster, I'm looking at it in, I'm in my basement right now and it's, 
and it's framed on my wall. It has three small pictures on the left and right side and a sort of a picture, sort of a, a concert picture of them on stage and it's sort of from, from afar. And in the very bottom left corner is information about the Rush Backstage Club to write to it. And that just opened up everything for me because they offer the opportunity to, um, they came out with newsletters, so they had a pen pal list. And I discovered Rush fans that way. Um, and I became really good friends with one that we were writing like 20 pages each going back and forth. We, we, were, we were corresponding for at least 10 years doing this. And it was fantastic. I was pen pals with others. And one of them suggested, why don't you create something else? And I should mention that before I got into doing the fanzine, I wrote a book on Rush, a trivia quiz book. When I was 14 in the summer in my basement, I, was, I, wrote, I wrote out 10 questions for us about a theme, something related to Rush, did 100 pages, 1,000 questions I did. I knocked it out that summer. When you're bored, there's no internet, you get creative. <laughs> and I was going through all the different tour books prior to Signals, all the lyrics, listening to as many radio. In any time they show up on radio, I'm recording uh, the radio shows on whatever I can get my hands on. And it was a joy to me to do something I liked so much. And from that trivia book, then I thought about going another way to try it. And I, I, I tried to get published and I couldn't. Um, but in any case, that, that sort of what didn't stop me was the desire to connect with other Rush fans. And to, I was the kind of Rush fan that if I saw someone else wearing a Rush t-shirt, I would approach them. I would say, hey, cool shirt. Did you see, you know, and get, mm -hmm. the, get the conversation started. If I saw, you know, I would, my ears would perk up if someone's car came going by and they have the windows open and I'm hearing Red Bar Shadow or Tom Sawyer through their speakers. I'm going to be like, like that. So I'm just, just freaking out practically saying, oh my God, someone's playing Rush. This is so cool. So any, any opportunity to connect with others, whether it's PayPal, excuse me, pen pals, <laughs> rather than PayPal, I just, I slipped there. I went back to uh, current times. But in any case, all of this was put me into the position where I wanted to connect. And I thought, what if I created something that people could really sink their teeth into where they can connect with each other? And I think the word that was not there then that I thought of was, was something like crowdsourcing where you'd have members, they would contribute to the information that I had. I wanted to share this information before the internet when you could look up stuff on Wikipedia and look up so much, you know, they're all out there. The information pages about Rush, there wasn't that back then. So we're just trying to make sense of different things and, I try to answer, try to figure out why they did certain things and any information was just, you want to just add to it. And that's where I did with each issue of the fanzine. I mapped it out where each issue would be an album and those who subscribed would send in to me an essay of their impressions, what, everything they knew about that album, the making of and everything. And I would pull together all this, all these essays and take in bits and pieces of, of whoever and quote them and put them into the essay about the album. In fact, someone who was, uh, who was on your show was a member, um, Ray from uh, up in upstate New York who wrote the, uh, the essay about permanent waves. 
he was, I didn't realize this. I was looking them up and I just realized this morning, oh my gosh, he was somebody <laughs> my fanzine. I couldn't believe that. I and noticed I, his name when I was reading the, the first up, the first um, issue. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised. Do you still have that trivia book? I don't know what happened to this manuscript. I had it. Mm. I typed it up. My dad helped me with the prospectus and uh, they didn't, the, whoever we sent it to, they didn't think there was a market for it. I think the ideal thing for the trivia book, because this is a time where trivia, trivial pursuit was, was hot yeah. at the time. And mm -hmm. I think the best thing would have been to approach the band and see if they would get it published through them and put it on their, you know, sell it at the tours. That would have been like, you know, the best market. Right. So now to get the first issue together, Derek, you reached out to your pen pals and say, hey, write me an essay? No, I actually put an ad in Circus Magazine. Wow. Yeah. I did all the planning in 1985. This is in my, I was in 11th grade and I put an ad in and the amount of mail I got was nuts. And I got people writing to me as if I was some connection with Rush. They were sending me the mail that they're supposed to get about their talk about how much they love the band and talking, writing to me as if I'm Neil or Alex or Getty. It was, it was weird. I mean, I remember Neil saying at one interview, he says he gets all this flake mail and I created a shoebox and I filled it with uh, letters that came to me asking about, not so much about my, the, the fanzine, but just as if they've never had any, any address to write to the band. They found me and they decided, okay, let's hopefully he'll pass on my letter. So it was kind of weird that way. So do you think it's just Rush fans who didn't have anybody else to talk to about Rush that were just excited to have someone else to share their fandom with? Yeah, well, Circus was pretty popular, as, as you probably know. I check every month for a Rush article, and I'm sure they have big circulation. And it was costing me, you know, by the word, to, it was pretty expensive to put that ad in there uh, sometime in 1985. And uh, I asked them to send me a self-adjust stamped envelope so I can send them information. Hey, this is what it's about. And it's $7 for a year subscription, four issues. And I ended up having, I think, 33, I counted this morning, 33 or 35 subscribers. I had someone in Japan. I had people all over the world, I'd say. Um, I remember someone from a station, from the United States station in Germany. So some people were more involved and others were not. I mean, in terms of writing essays, sending things back to me, and sort of having a rapport from that point. So you were a fan of uh, fanzines in general in the 80s? I just cooked this up. I, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> not, right. I, you know, I, someone just said to me, hey, I can do the covers. There's some guy named Jerry Brown in Florida, graphic artist, and he sent me this stuff. I'm like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And that's what my covers were. It was this artwork. I've I'd never seen that stuff before. And uh, he asked me after the whole thing was over, he asked me if I can mail it back to him. And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. But uh, his stuff was great. Yeah, the covers are, are beautiful. Yeah. In fact, the other promotion I did was during the Power Windows tour, I printed out business cards and I went to the Meadowlands and Nassau Coliseum. And while Marillion, Marillion was performing, I would go go up and down the uh the the higher row the higher sections of both venues and 
take a bunch of my business cards and scream in the person at the very end of the, of a row, say, take one, pass one down. So I was giving out business cards to everybody around me. I could do that. It was, and I got caught one of those shows by security who confiscated my business cards and wouldn't let me come back. They didn't like throw them out. They allowed me to take them after I was done with the show, but I was giving them out and I had nobody replying back to me from those business cards. It was all from circus. You know, this was the stone age of marketing. So I had no idea what I was doing, but I was hoping as a pipe dream that someone from looking at my business card would have an interest to, to write to me. Did you only hand them out at Nassau? Nassau and the Meadowlands, both shows at the Meadowlands. <laughs> Cause we were at that Meadowlands show. You might've gotten one. I don't know. Um, there was, there was, I was, in fact, with the, um, one of those shows, I think it might've been, I'm not sure which with the Meadowlands or I, because I had floor seats and I passed by Howard Ungerleiter and I showed him my fanzine and actually I'm holding this up to the camera here. He signed my first issue. He looked it over. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. He did that. And also what was really weird was it was kind of strange because I've only saw him in print ads of like musician magazines, Ned Steinberger of Steinberger guitars. He was there too, hanging around uh, where Howard was. And so I had him sign this too. I was like, yeah, why not? But that was a real treat. And in fact, I called up SRO thinking, well, maybe he'll remember me. He, I asked uh, if they, he'd be willing to, uh, if I could schedule an interview with him, but he, he turned me down. He just, he wasn't interested. So that's the way it goes. But I had no idea I was doing this. You know, I was the first one doing this. I, I thought there might be others out there. And I think on the Roll the Bones tour, I bumped into the publisher of one that I'm sure had better traction than me, A Show of Hands. I think that was the name of the mm-hmm. other one. Um, there was one, yep. Yeah, that might have been the name of it. He showed it to me. I, I was just telling about the one that I had done. So how did you get these printed up, Derek? What did you do? Just make photocopies or what, what did you do? Yeah, I just typed it up on an electric typewriter and uh, took it to a local print shop to make uh, the copies of, you know, extra copies, of course. I still have copies of uh, the ones to subscribe and mail it out and just use all the money for that. And I took a loss. I'm pretty sure. I don't know how much money it was. I, <laughs> I was spending on postage and all those other fun things that go along with running a, some kind of little small business out of your, uh, out of a room in your house. But it was, uh, it was all a great quote unquote learning experience for me about what it's like to do a thing like that. And did you have big, big plans for the, for the fanzine? Yeah. You know, I was along with uh, stuff I found in my attic from Rushology. I found I had a notepad and I had all these ideas about who to hire. Uh, it was all mapped out, you know, <laughs> right. it was totally taking over. It would have been, if, if, if things would work out, opening up a savings account, if I have more than a hundred dollars from the whole thing, you know, that's <laughs> small, you know, thinking small and work my way up there, but nothing, you know, who to interview, you know, Peggy or uh, Ray Daniels, anybody in SRO, just, you know, thinking of all these ideas that keep on, came, that kept on flowing in me. In a world that seems so small, you can't stop thinking big, can you, Derek? <laughs> oh, and yeah, this is, that's, that's really, that was me back in the 80s, uh, waiting for the internet to get invented. <laughs> As we all were. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't even know it. <laughs> we're like, hello, we're bored, let's do something here. Nobody knew, but we were like, when is this thing coming that's going to entertain us? Oh, gosh, and thank God it did. But it was, still, <laughs> it was so humbling when it did because I felt like I knew a lot about Rush. And then I discovered, I think there was like a, like a news digest because in the, like the early days of the internet, um, 
it was like, this is right. I think maybe even before Netscape, uh, there was some kind of like an email digest called the national midnight star. And there are so many people on there and there's so much information and it was so humbling to realize, Oh, I thought I knew, I thought I knew a lot. And thinking, I really don't know that much about rush all these, you know, they had compiled, they did what I tried doing single handedly with rushology in terms of pooling in information. They were just such a, such a higher level of that where, you know, they're frequently asked questions about rush. So much was answered. In fact, I found in like an old files of mine, a printout of that. And it was just, it's just, it's mind-blowing how much was collected even back then in the early 90s. Yeah, Derek, welcome to our world. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. And that was the thing is that um, I made reference to is that in the 1980s, it was more about how much you know about Rush to see right. how much of a Rush fan you are. I know. Now it's more about how many shows have you seen. So that was such a change. And I was like, what? You know, I, I lost count how many. It was, I didn't really use that as a measuring stick for what kind of how much of a Rush fan I was. Right. It shows that it's what you know about rush. Right. I guess the currency changed over time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. I didn't get the, I didn't get the, I didn't get the memo about that. Yeah. <laughs> didn't get the exchange rate. <laughs> I didn't. So Derek, your, your fanzine only had four issues. Why did you decide to stop it ultimately? Well, um, I was looking back on this on the very last section of the last issue. It says attention, something like attention, rushology me- members warning, this is going to fold if we don't contribute more, if you don't subscribe and all that kind of stuff. You know, you can only, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. What I was expecting that people would be just like me, pouring in, um, being prolific, writing about what is important about Rush and everything. It wasn't so much. And the, another big thing was I went to college. Now from being bored out of my skull, in a sense, pre-internet in the suburbs of Long Island to go to a big state school like Penn State, where it was like overstimulation. It was such a challenge doing that last issue. When you think it's December, that's my first semester of, of finals. And I was, I think I remember I was fighting the flu at the time of my finals and also had to do this too. So this was really, I knew that this was going to be too much for me. I think I was biting off more than I can chew. But you, you're proud though, of having really the, the first rush fanzine. There were some after you, but this, this was the first one. Yeah, I had no idea. And I would have, uh, that would have been really exciting to me to know at the time. I wasn't aware of it. I think it was something, a project of, you know, and if I try to do it, maybe it's going to happen. It's just, it's kind of an accomplishment. I just like a feather put in my hat that I did this single-handedly. I wasn't expecting I could. I thought that I would not be able to do a thing like this or something would go wrong. And it, it opened up doors for me and it gave me so much self-confidence in, um, doing things like that. I think I just jumped from uh, doing uh, this this to, and I use this as um, a reason for me to become the newsletter editor of the Jazz Club at Penn State, where it was rather than like listening, it was setting up concerts and meeting musicians, things like that. And that opened a door for me as a freshman working with all these seniors who are seasoned, you know, coordinating concerts. And I learned so much that way. Now, before we started uh, recording, we were talking just about your background now. And you said you were, you're a psychologist. Uh, well, I'm a officially a therapist, licensed therapist, uh, getting my license right now. I become a full therapist. Um, because there's a long, it's too long of a story, uh, about my career changes, but I got a degree in psychology and, um, yes, in, in graduate school, uh, psychological counseling. And then we started talking about one of my favorite questions, which is 
why do people gravitate to Rush? What is it about the band or what is it about the person? And you had this theory. Could you explain what you were talking about before the, we started recording? It, it, I can talk about the theory first and then I'll talk about myself. It might make it easier that way because I can plug, I can use myself as an example. When I was in graduate school, um, one of the things I studied was about racial identity and racism. And there was a lot, there was literature, there was a lot of research on this in an area called racial identity development. And the researchers, the, the, the psychology scholars, they would do research on this and thought that people go through stages, just like developmental stages, just for whites and blacks. And I did a lot of work about that. In fact, my wife, she was um, at NYU and she did her dissertation on um, racial identity development. Now, the words they use, it doesn't really matter. But at the time, as a Rush fan, I thought, oh, this stuff sounds familiar to me. It reminds me of some of the stuff I went through and I know others go through. And I started plugging away and realized it's really close to it. In fact, it's kind of what people go through with almost any identity. And it kind of confirms, yes, Rush is a part of my identity. It's part of who I am. I, real, I get that. It's such a deep part of me. And it was great. It was refreshing to see that there's theory about this process. And I'll go, th I'll go through it with you. Um, there's the sort of the stage of you're not really a Rush fan. You sort of heard of them, not really into it too much, the casual stuff. And then things get fun with the discovery process. Now, the discovery process is whatever, you know, the question you ask, what got you into Rush? That's the entry point. And it is visceral. It is so intense and you realize it's like almost like you're when you were, when you sort of like someone who was blind or colorblind related to racism, all of a sudden you wake up. And as a result of that, you want to do something from that. You want to immerse yourself in this identity. So as a Rush fan, you may immerse yourself by getting as much merchandise, wearing a Rush t-shirt. I remember in the summer of uh, when I was 14, I went to a day camp and I wore rush buttons every day, different rush buttons every day. I always would immerse myself in that. And sometimes it could be clothing. It could be getting all the albums. It could be the concerts, you know, how nowadays you want to go as many concerts as possible to build up your resume as a rush fan. It's this immersion process. It's like, you just don't even can't understand why anybody would like any other band, but rush. It's, it's such a bias that you don't really can be objective about it. You know, anyone who says, oh, I hate Rush, you just don't even want to be, be around them. You just <laughs> feel as if you're the person, you're, you know, you, you immerse yourself so much that I, I still have these. I have photos of Rush fans sending me their rooms and it's covered with Rush posters confirming this is the band you like. You get into it so much and then it's just an organic process where you do this so much where the only way to go is to get out of this, where you emerge from this, where you start liking other bands. You start saying, okay, it's all right if I'm friends with someone who's not a diehard Rush fan. <laughs> you start that slow process out of that. And it might start, you know, that's, that's kind of where that heads. Now, after that stage, 
I don't have the name for it in with racial identity development, but it's the stage where you sort of reassess yourself as a Rush fan. You know that that immersion process, you needed that, but you're out of that. And you know that you can listen to other bands and it doesn't like affect you. It isn't like you're compromising anything if you turn off the radio in the middle of a Rush song because you've reached your driveway. It can happen. I mean, I, I personally still want to keep the Rush song going. Some people do it and it doesn't feel like you're doing something wrong as a Rush fan. It's okay. And you, get, you don't need to wear a t-shirt to prove you're a Rush fan. You just know it. And you don't have to market yourself as one. It becomes that way. And I think that what happens is, just like with racial identity development, these stages, they are not like mutually exclusive, nor are they um, set where once you're in one stage, you can't go back. A great example of the going through it over and over is every time a, a new Rush album came out. It's the discovery of the album, getting back into it. I mean, there's like the off season when they're not touring they're, and they're maybe recording, you don't know about it, or they're taking some time off. And that could be like a later, you can go through that stage where you're sort of like, you know, get into other bands. But once a new album comes out, you get, go, you come right back into immersing yourself into that album, getting back into the back catalog, and then slowly get yourself out of it. Like say, you know, and again, with the Rush concert, seeing that you immerse yourself, you really, you've, you go, you dip back into that. But I think the, what's really hard as a Rush fan is to, experience and feel that initial discovery stage when you first became a Rush fan. You want to go back to that. You want to relive that in those intense moments where it's that head to toe feeling. It's hard to, but sometimes you can. And I came close because the tour books that I collect, I had in my attic for a while. So returning back to them just kind of gives me goosebumps just to return back to because it's been such a long time. So Derek, do you think age has anything to do with the development of a Rush fan. It seems to us that everybody we talk to, when they're a teenager, that's when they become a Rush fan. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a therapist, and I really enjoy when I have clients who are 13 or 14 years old. That was the age I became a Rush fan, and they're so impressionable, and they really liked, they want to know more, they want to start exploring beyond what's around them. And they're curious and they want it as I love from that, the big wheel, they want to chase after something new to believe them. And sometimes I get that from clients that age. And I was at that age. And I think that it's the timing of when rush appeals to you and the timing of it can be just so perfect. And other times it just doesn't click. Like when I got signals, it didn't click. When I heard Tom Sawyer on the radio, before signals came out, I just wasn't ready for it. But when I'm looking around and just things have to be sort of, you know, have to be aligned up a certain way. And then it's just perfect. And I think I got lucky that I was listening to the right music at the right time in my life that got me into Rush. That's funny because there are so many like classic rock albums that people I know like, and then they say, you should listen to the Stooges first album or something. And then I listen to it. And I'm like, I don't really, it doesn't really do anything for me. Is, is that the same thing? Is it because I, I'm not in kind of a more open-minded place at this point in my life? I'm not sure. I think that it is for each to each his own. They're just, the timing of something is just right 
it really can speak to you. I get that from books. There are some books where I am in my life. It speaks to me so much. And I've gone back to the book, Jerry, years later. And I'm like, ah, mm. I didn't get that again. You just can't put your foot in the water twice. It does something. And I relish those books, but they just don't have the same appeal to me as yeah. the first time. And I, and I think with Rush, there is, of course, there's, it's very close, but it's not a bullseye like, yes, that's exact. I can't go back to that feeling. And I chase after it. And I would chase after it after every album came out. And I chase after it every, every tour book came out to get the same feeling from that first, when, that, when I read the Signals tour book. I would, that was my chase, is to get that feeling of discovery when I first got into Rush. Now, do you think the lyrics of Rush has something to do with this too, Derek. I mean, the, the lyrics are so compelling compared to other bands and teenagers are so impressionable. They feel connected to the lyrics, do you think? Absolutely. I think Neil, I don't know how much he realized what he was doing because I read, I'm reading right now the, um, the modern drummer, the interviews that he, he did a lot of interviews, you know, with Modern Drummer Magazine and they're so long and I'm looking back on them and he's just right. He talks about being a lyricist as just a secondary thing. He's a drummer, and he know. And at the time, like when he, when it was when they were published in the nineteen eighties, he's not really giving it much weight. But I don't know if he realized. I mean, obviously, he struck gold with subdivisions because that was like a real turning point for him. But so many of those songs, I don't know if he knew what he, how much it appealed. I look at him as equally drummer and lyricist, and I I completely agree with you, Steve. I think that they they do something. I I, I even to this day there that. I have clients that I know when I'm talking to them, I know there's a, there's a rush song. I can probably just, I, and I do this. I just send them the lyrics because I know that this is what they're going through right now. Like the pass or, um, or subdivisions or free will. There's some songs they pop in my head during, during a therapy session. I know. Okay. I, now I know where, I know where this is going. Okay. So I, you know, I, I follow through and I text them like the lyrics, for example, because I know that there's something that, and by the way, I, I don't think I've ever gotten anyone into Rush. I mean, you know, some people aren't really good. They just casually, here, try this. I can't do it. I'm not a proselytizer. I can't. I, it's, there's something about that. I, I, maybe it's my relationship with Rush. I just can't see myself going past that and say, you got to do what I did. It just feels forced. And I wouldn't want to force anything on anybody that way. Right. So you wouldn't want to force, you wouldn't want someone to not love it because it was forced on them. Right. Because you love it so much. Yeah, I'd rather be the catalyst here. Just try this or see if you like this. You know, when I recommend anything, say, just give it a try. I'm not yeah. going to, I don't want to force anything on anybody. My kids, when I first had them listen, you know, they just put their hands over their ears. They don't want to do it. That <laughs> but, but then they heard Caravan. I can't stop thinking big. And they're like, oh. Really? Yeah. They, I, I, I mean, my memories of, uh, you know, my, my favorite memories of my kids well, in the car with me was uh, listening to Caravan and they're singing along to I Can't Stop Thinking Big. And they were, this was five years, five plus, what is it? It came out in 2012. So it was eight years ago. There were kids, they were just singing along to it. They loved it because that's how they feel. So what is it about a, a certain personality that gets into Rush? Is there anything that you can pinpoint about Rush fans in general? I feel like and, and I, I use myself as a reference point here. It's, it fascinates me because I feel as if there's got to be a stage before becoming a Rush fan that you see what's out there and you're not satisfied with what's out there, whether it's just the sound of a, the quality of a song, the way it's produced, the quality of lyrics, 
you want something more. And that's what I wanted back then. I mean, as much as I love the police, do, 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 da, 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 that song, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. They made a song called that. And I knew back then as much as I, mean, I had the 45, it was a fun song, great video on Casey Kasem's top 10 on, on, on TV and everything. But I realized there's got to be something better than this out there. And it felt like I was searching and searching and I was down to a few bands like the police. I liked Van Halen because girls in seventh grade like Van Halen. So I was into <laughs> them. Um, I liked the who a little bit Led Zeppelin because every guy liked Led Zeppelin, but it was nothing that spoke to me. And I think the fact that, you know, they weren't a band everyone knew about. There was something about that also that was really appealing back then. But for me, I really was at the time, I was at the point where I knew I wanted something more. I didn't know what it was. I was a frustrated teenager at like 13, um, 14, um, bored. And that was a big word because capital B in the suburbs in Long Island in the 1980s. And I think that how those things came about helped me realize why I like got into Rush. They gave me a direction in my life. I mean, just hearing, I don't know if you, if you experienced this when you first heard Neil speak, just how he spoke. He didn't say, you know, talking, you know, give, you know, he would say, you, say like this and saying the word like a lot of times he spoke eloquently, he spoke clearly. And my reaction was, I want to talk like him. <laughs> I want to speak the way he speaks. And I loved discovering about Alex's sense of humor. I wanted to have Alex's sense of humor. I loved how Getty was a multitasker. They were role models for me in my teenage years. And I don't want to like, you know, push my parents under the bus, not coming from America. They were European immigrants. They had no idea about American culture. They didn't give me any kind of guidance. And that was, I would have to admit that's part of it too. This gave me the guidance and the map that I needed to be, to get through t being a teenager. And God only knows what my life would be like if I wasn't into Rush. That's how I look at it. I never really, ex I've never really pondered about that because it's always been such a, such a deep part of me. Is there a particular Rush song, Derek, that speaks to you? If I were to ask you what one Rush song speaks to you the most, what would it be? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two songs pop in my head. Um, I'm, I'm, they're, they're, they're debating right now with my head, but I will, I will say Free Will. Um, it's consummate because it's Getty's voice, it's Alice's guitar, it's Getty's guitar, it's Neil's lyrics, it's the pace of it. I love, that's my favorite album, Power, um, Permanent Waves. It's, this song will continue to give me goosebumps. A second place to me is Analog Kid because I, I can really connect to that song so much. And when I listened to that song when I was a kid with on my Walkman and I sat on my front grass listening to the song, I would grab a blade of grass and put it in my mouth while listening to it with the lyrics. You're the Analog Kid. <laughs> That's going to be my license plate of my next car. I've decided <laughs> I'm, I'm the Analog. I'm going to do it. I'm going to push. I'm going to, yeah. <laughs> Um, now I, have, I have one more question just about um, the identity development theory you were talking about. Is there a difference between a part of your identity that 
you assume and then can possibly take off at some point and some other part of your identity that is more intrinsic to who you are? Not sure. I think this is a really good question. I have to think about this and I know that I would have a better answer for you like tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, this is something you got to sort out. You got to sort out those two parts and figure out what is important to you. And I think what I hear from Rush through interviews, um, their approach to music uh, that I've taken on is you got to be true to yourself. What is it of Rush that's important to you? Put it into practice of who you are and, you know, sift through the stuff that you don't need. And I think that's what they did about as musicians, as people. And I still believe that today. I think they, they, they live with integrity. I think that's what they, I think that's the big message that Rush sends us is live your life with integrity. It's a better life to live than, than not. Derek, thanks so much for joining us today. Derek Bacharach, publisher of the first ever Rush fanzine, Rushology. Thanks for joining us on the Rush Fancast. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Good luck with your podcast. It's, it's so good. I'm looking forward to every episode. Oh, wow. Thanks. So, Jared, that conversation morphed into a psychology conversation, which was great. Yeah, it was great. It's really a question I've been wanting to ask someone. It's been on my little list of topics for this podcast, and here it just fell into our laps. Yeah, we thought we were going to be talking about a fanzine, and we talked about a lot more. Yeah, so interesting. And speaking of the fanzine, if you want to see the fanzine, you can go to our friend John Petuto's website, CygnusX1.net, and read the fanzines in their entirety. It's very interesting. It is. Very cool. And you can even see the, um, the business card that Derek made up and handed out. There's a, an image of that there too. Do they make business cards anymore? Do people have business cards anymore, Jer? Yeah, I, you can have them made. There are places where you can have business cards print, printed up. I'm sure some people need business cards, Steve. You and I don't need them. Maybe we should get a Rush fan cast something for nothing <laughs> business card and just start handing them out in the streets of New York City. What do you think? Yeah, we can put them in all those fish bowls in places and maybe get a free lunch out of it. <laughs> That's probably about all we'll get. And then we're going to end up in the red, probably. <laughs> you know, another thing I think we should mention, Jared, is the other fanzines that came after Derek's fanzine. Mm-hmm. Summer of 1987, a year later, The Spirit of Rush debuted. Yeah. And that's the fanzine that Ray was talking about on the episode last week. He was a major contributor to that. Yeah, he was. Yeah. There was also The Necromancer, which was from 1988. There were nine issues and a show of fans. Summer of 1991, Steve and Mandy Streeter. Didn't you say you had a a subscription to that? I did. I did. I don't know what happened to the issues that I had, but I did have a subscription. I probably read them secondhand from you. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. So just thought we should throw that in there, that there were other fanzines that were more successful than Derek's. Right. But Derek was the first. He was the first, yeah. So kudos to Derek. Yeah. I mean, just think about trying to start up a fanzine back then, trying to start up a magazine. (laughs) What an incredible amount of work to do. Yeah, even four issues. That was an incredible accomplishment, really. Yeah, it was. And the Spirit of Rush ran longer, much longer, right? 64 issues. Wow. Mick Burnett, who has unfortunately passed away, created the Spirit of Rush. That's a commitment. Very much so. Almost like 64 episodes of a podcast. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) 
something tells me that he must have put a, a, a little more work into each of those episodes. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Jer. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are The Rushcast. Email Jerry. Let us know what you thought of Derek's conversation at therushcast at gmail.com. Lex did the bass intro, and Jerry did a great Rush quote at the end of the podcast. And here it is. It's from Natural Science, which is on Permanent Waves, which Derek said was his favorite album. It's the most endangered species, the honest man, will still survive annihilation, forming a world, state of integrity, sensitive, open, and strong. Awesome. Thanks, Jer. Thank you. Take it easy.